This episode is sponsored by Robin. Do you think being an orthopedic surgeon has gotten more risky? It could be because of anything, from the economy to compliance concerns. If your answer is yes, you're not alone. According to a recent survey from Robin Healthcare, nearly three out of four doctors say practicing today is more risky than it was just five years ago. It's no wonder, then, that a majority of doctors also say they're documenting more in their medical notes to protect themselves against malpractice claims, audits, and insurance denials. If that's what you're doing, you need to check out Robin. Robin does all the documentation for your patient visits and delivers notes and codes that help protect your practice. To discover how, visit robin.co slash orthobullets. That's robin.co slash orthobullets. This episode of the Orthobullets podcast will go over the topic of plantar fasciitis from the foot and ankle section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Plantar fasciitis is a painful heel condition caused by inflammation of the plantar fascia aponeurosis at its origin on the calcaneus. Diagnosis is made clinically with tenderness to palpation at the medial tuberosity of the calcaneus that worsens with dorsiflexion of the toes and the foot. Treatment is a prolonged course of pain control, Achilles-slash-plantar fascia stretching, and orthotics. Rarely, surgical management is indicated in the case of progressive symptoms that fail non-operative management. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as demographics, plantar fasciitis affects men and women equally. In terms of anatomic location, plantar fasciitis affects the posteromedial heel. Risk factors include obesity, that is defined by a high BMI, decreased ankle dorsiflexion in a non-athletic population secondary to tightness of the foot and calf musculature, and finally another risk factor is weight-bearing endurance activities like dancing and running. With respect to the pathophysiology, chronic overuse leads to micro-tears in the origin of the plantar fascia. Repetitive trauma leads to recurrent inflammation and periostitis. The abductor hallucis, flexor digitorum brevis, and quadratus plantae share the origin on the medial calcaneal tubercle and may be inflamed as well. Associated conditions with plantar fasciitis include calcaneal apophysitis, gastrocnemius soleus contracture, and the heel pain triad, which is plantar fasciitis, posterior tibial tendon dysfunction, and tarsal tunnel syndrome. Anatomic variations that can potentially lead to plantar fasciitis include femoral antiversion, pes cavus, and pes planus. With respect to anatomy, the plantar fascia is a thin layer of connective tissue supporting the arch of the foot. Plantar fasciitis typically presents as a sharp heel pain, often first thing in the morning getting out of bed, and a lot of patients prefer to walk on their toes for the first few steps when getting out of bed. The pain typically gets better as you walk, but then increases again with increasing activity, and it can be at its worst at the end of a long day of standing and it's common to have symptoms bilaterally. When you examine someone with plantar fasciitis, patients are typically tender to palpation at the medial tuberosity of the calcaneus. In addition, dorsiflexion of the toes and foot increases tenderness with palpation. Other findings on physical exam include limited ankle dorsiflexion due to a tight Achilles tendon. Tenderness at the origin of the abductor hallucis is found in a small subset of patients, which is indicative of entrapment or irritation of the first branch of the lateral plantar nerve, otherwise known as Baxter's nerve. With respect to imaging for plantar fasciitis, radiographs are not necessary on initial visit. They are often normal, but may show a plantar heel spur. Optional films can include weight-bearing axial and lateral films of the hind foot, which may show structural changes. 
and MRI may be useful for surgical planning. Bone scans can quantify inflammation as well as guide management and can be useful to rule out stress fractures. Labs are not routinely indicated, but might be useful if other causes of heel pain are suspected, like inflammatory arthritis or infection. EMG can be useful to rule out entrapment. Treatment of plantar fasciitis can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes pain control, splinting, and stretching therapy programs. This is typically the first line of treatment. Specific modalities for non-operative management include plantar fascia-specific stretching and Achilles tendon stretching, anti-inflammatories or cortisone injections. However, keep in mind that corticosteroid injections can lead to fat pad atrophy or plantar fascia rupture. Other modalities include foot orthoses, and examples include cushioned heel inserts, prefabricated shoe inserts, night splints, or walking casts. Short leg casts can be used for 8 to 10 weeks if needed. As far as outcomes, prefabricated shoe inserts have been shown to be more effective than custom orthotics in relieving symptoms when used in conjunction with Achilles and plantar fascia stretching. Dorsiflexion night splints are most appropriate for chronic plantar fasciitis. A non-weight-bearing plantar fascia-specific stretching program is more effective than weight-bearing Achilles tendon stretching programs. Stretching programs have equally successful satisfaction outcomes at two years. Over 90% of patients get better with non-surgical management of plantar fasciitis. Specifically, a plantar fascia-specific stretching program has been shown to have the highest patient satisfaction after eight weeks. The purpose of the plantar fascia-specific stretches, as opposed to an Achilles tendon stretching program, is that the plantar fascia exercises recreate the windlass mechanism of the foot and achieve tissue tension through a controlled stretch of the plantar fascia. A windlass mechanism is basically the tightening of a rope or cable, and the plantar fascia simulates a cable attached to the calcaneus and metatarsophalangeal joints. One other alternative treatment for plantar fasciitis that can be tried for cases lasting longer than six months is extracorporeal shockwave therapy, which has been approved by the FDA for plantar fasciitis. This is basically an externally applied, focused, high-intensity acoustic pulse, typically done under sedation or anesthesia, in order to help patients remain still and reduce possible discomfort. It's largely used for kidney stones and gallstones, but it's used as a second-line measure to treat things like tennis elbow, rotator cuff pain, and plantar fasciitis that did not respond to other conservative treatments. Patients typically get better by up to six months after this treatment if it works. Operative options include gastrocnemius recession, surgical release with plantar fasciotomy, or surgical release with plantar fasciotomy and distal tarsal tunnel decompression. Gastrocnemius recession has no clear indications established. Surgical release with plantar fasciotomy is indicated for persistent pain after nine months of failed conservative measures. As far as outcomes, complications are common and recovery can be protracted. Surgical release with plantar fasciotomy and distal tarsal tunnel decompression is indicated for those patients with concomitant compression neuropathy, specifically the tibial nerve in the tarsal tunnel. Surgical release with plantar fasciotomy and distal tarsal tunnel decompression must be done as an open procedure. As far as outcomes, success rates are 70 to 90% for dual plantar fascial release and distal tarsal tunnel decompression. As far as the specific technique for a surgical release with plantar fasciotomy, the approach can be done open or arthroscopically. However, an open procedure is indicated if tarsal tunnel syndrome is present, as we just mentioned. As far as releasing the plantar fascia, release the medial one-third to two-thirds of the plantar fascia and avoid complete release as it may lead to destabilization of the longitudinal arch, 
overload of the lateral column, and or dorsolateral foot pain. Consider simultaneous release of Baxter's nerve, which is done by releasing the deep fascia of the abductor hallucis. This may improve outcomes. Surgical complications can include lateral plantar nerve injury, complete release of the plantar fascia with destabilization of the medial longitudinal arch, increased stress on the dorsolateral midfoot, chronic pain, or plantar fascia rupture. Risk factors for plantar fascia rupture are athletes, minimalist runners, and corticosteroid injections. You treat patients who rupture their plantar fascia with cast immobilization. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 34-year-old female has an insidious onset of heel pain when first getting out of bed and at the end of the day after prolonged standing. She works as a waitress and recently had bariatric surgery with a current BMI of 35. She has a gastrocnemius contracture noted on silver scold testing. AP and oblique radiographs do not show any evidence of fracture or osteonecrosis. What is the most likely diagnosis? And the choices are 1. Navicular stress fracture. 2. Freiberg's infraction. 3. Plantar fasciitis. 4. First branch of the lateral plantar nerve or Baxter's nerve entrapment. And 5. Anterior tarsal tunnel syndrome. So if you have good situational awareness and know that this is a review about plantar fasciitis, you'll probably guess that the correct answer is 3, plantar fasciitis. But to quickly review, classic symptoms of plantar fasciitis include startup inferior heel pain with patients often preferring to walk on their toes for the first few steps when getting out of bed. The pain lessens with ambulation and then increases again with increased activity. None of the other options listed have this classic constellation of symptoms. The level 3 case control study by Riddle et al. found that reduced ankle dorsiflexion was the strongest independent risk factor for development of plantar fasciitis with an odds ratio of 23, BMI of greater than 30 with an odds ratio of 5, and work-related weight-bearing with an odds ratio of 3 are independent risk factors for plantar fasciitis. Moving on to the next question. For the treatment of new-onset plantar fasciitis, which of the following modalities results in the highest patient satisfaction at eight weeks of follow-up? And the choices are 1. Isolated Achilles tendon stretching program. 2. Corticosteroid injection. 3. Extracorporeal shockwave therapy. 4. Plantar fascia-specific stretching program. And 5. Distal tarsal tunnel decompression and partial plantar fascia release. The correct answer to this question is 4. Plantar fascia-specific stretching program. Symptoms of plantar fasciitis include startup inferior heel pain, with patients often preferring to walk on their toes for the first few steps when getting out of bed. The pain lessens with ambulation and then increases again with increased activity. The review article by Neufeld and Serrato details that stretching programs have been the primary treatment therapy modality for patients with plantar fasciitis. The purpose of plantar fascia-specific stretching is to recreate the windlass mechanism and achieve tissue tension through a controlled stretch of the plantar fascia. The Level 2 study by D. Giovanni et al. compared these two protocols and showed that heel pain was eliminated or improved at 8 weeks in 52% of patients treated with the plantar fascia-specific stretching program versus only 22% of patients participating in the Achilles tendon stretching program. 
At two years follow-up, the study reported no difference between the two groups, with 92% of all patients reporting total satisfaction or satisfaction with minor reservations. So to quickly go over the incorrect answers, corticosteroids, that's answer two, should be used rarely as they can cause fat atrophy and even plantar fascia rupture. The FDA has approved extracorporeal shockwave therapy, that's answer three, for plantar fasciitis, lasting greater than six months. The AOS Comprehensive Orthopedic Review states surgical treatment, that's answer five, is indicated for symptoms lasting greater than nine months despite conservative management. Moving on to the next question, what is the best first-line treatment for plantar fascial rupture? And the choices are one, urgent primary repair, two, delayed primary repair, three, cast immobilization for three to six weeks, four, supervised stretching program, and five, corticosteroid injections. So plantar fascia rupture can be treated effectively with cast immobilization for three to six weeks. The plantar fascia is a non-elastic, multi-layered fibrous structure that acts via a windlass mechanism to support the foot arch in the late stages of the stance phase. Rupture of the plantar fascia has been shown to occur acutely in athletes or as part of a degenerative process in patients with pre-existing plantar fasciitis. Treatment is almost exclusively non-operative in cast immobilization for three to six weeks. Kim et al. performed a retrospective chart review of 120 patients who received corticosteroid injection for plantar fasciitis. They found four patients, that is 2.4% of the patients studied, that suffered plantar fascia rupture following an average of 2.67 injections. The average BMI of these patients was 38.6 kilograms per meter squared. They concluded that corticosteroid injection therapy appears to have a relatively low incidence of plantar fascia rupture. Acevedo et al. evaluated 765 patients with a clinical diagnosis of plantar fasciitis. 51 patients suffered plantar fascia rupture. 44 of these ruptures were associated with corticosteroid injection. Rupture resulted in lateral and dorsal midfoot strain, lateral plantar nerve dysfunction, stress fracture, hammer toe deformity, and long-term swelling. And moving on to the final question, a 44-year-old recreational runner began training for a half marathon six weeks ago. Over the last week, he has developed heel pain that is worse in the morning upon wakening and when he arises from his desk at the end of the workday. Physical exam is notable for tenderness with direct palpation of the anteromedial heel. Which of the following is the best initial management? And the choices are 1. Stretching of the Achilles tendon and plantar fascia, along with a prefabricated shoe insert. 2. Immobilization in a short leg cast. 3. Steroid injection of the plantar fascia. 4. Custom-made orthotic with arch support. And 5. Surgical release of the medial third of the plantar fascia origin. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Stretching of the Achilles tendon and plantar fascia along with the prefabricated shoe insert. So the clinical presentation is consistent with plantar fasciitis. Initial treatment includes stretching of the plantar fascia and Achilles tendon. Shoe inserts and heel cups may be beneficial in relieving symptoms as well. Symptoms often take up to six months or a year to resolve and surgical release of the plantar fascia should be reserved for the exceptionally recalcitrant cases. Pfeffer et al. conducted a level one study of 236 patients with plantar fasciitis. All patients were treated with Achilles tendon and plantar fascia stretching. 
The patients were then randomized to a custom orthotic or prefabricated insert. The patients who received a prefabricated insert demonstrated significantly greater improvement in clinical symptoms at eight weeks. Hardy et al. conducted a biomechanical study of foot loading on live subjects. Lack of knee extension was associated with prolonged loading of the forefoot. The authors concluded that through the windlass mechanism of the plantar fascia, hamstring tightness may predispose the foot to development of plantar fasciitis. That's all for this review about plantar fasciitis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.